We are continuing our series that we began last week in the letter to the Ephesians. Paul has completed this, um, this wonderful celebration, all 200 words without any full stops, just going through as fast as he could as he, as he reflected on the great blessings that are ours in Christ. And now he comes to the second part of this chapter. I mean, the book wasn't written up in chapters but in our Bibles. The next part of what he just goes into this prayer, uh, a prayer for the, the Ephesians there in Ephesus. Prayer is an, is an amazing privilege we have as um, God's adopted sons and daughters. Our Heavenly Father wants us to talk with Him. And we get to talk with Him wherever we are, not just in church, but wherever we are, we get to pray to our Father. Our Father who always listens, who's always there. Not always and always answer, not in the ways that we sometimes would wish God would answer, but in ways that are in keeping with God, what God wants to do in our lives, how God wants to make us more like His Son Jesus. While he was a prisoner for his faith in the 1600s, John Bunyan, the author of um, Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a little book. And in this, he brilliantly describes what healthy prayer looks like. And he says this, a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or the soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. That's a lot of words. But he's saying this is what prayer looks like. As we look at the prayers of Paul, that's how Paul prays as well. Here, we find it here in Ephesians and we find it in other letters that Paul um, writes to other churches. What it, what it looks like to pray. What, what it, how can we pray the way God would have us pray? What prompts Paul after what he's just written about to start a prayer for the Ephesians? What is it that has prompted him to start this, this prayer we have before us today. It's something he's heard about them. We see this in verse 15. It says, I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. And it says, for this reason, what I've, what I've heard about you, I, I, I want to remind you that I'm praying for you constantly. I'm thanking God for you in my prayers. And Paul gives us a wonderful example in, in, the chap, in the verses that we're going to look at this morning um, for our own lives, for our own prayers in our own lives. He prays unceasingly, not just when he feels like it, not sporadically, he just prays unceasingly. He prays generously, not, not just for himself. I'm sure prayed, Paul prayed, he asked for prayer for himself in some of his letters, but he prays for others and he prays gratefully thanking God for God's work in their lives. How encouraging it must have been for the Ephesians to get this letter from Paul, a, a man that they looked up to, a man who started the church that they were, were, were now gathering up as, a man who spent his life travelling the world telling people about Jesus, a man who's now in prison for doing exactly that. And Paul, this busy man, finds time to write to this church and say, I'm praying for you without ceasing. 
challenge for us today. Do we pray for other people like Paul prayed for them? So let's have a look at this prayer in, in more detail. To begin with, Paul says he prays that the Ephesians will develop a deeper knowledge of Christ. In verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I know a lot about Peter Jackson, the filmmaker. Ah, he is coming. <laughs> a picture of Peter Jackson should be appearing on the screen any moment now. I know where Peter Jackson grew up in Wellington. I know that he was an only child. And as a child, as a little boy, he, well, a little bit older boy, maybe in his, in his teens and or teen, um, late primary age, his friend was given a camera and he started making short films with his friends. As a teenager, his greatest desire was to one day do a film on King Kong. That was his desire, well before the idea of tackling Lord of the Rings came into his mind. I know the difficulty Peter Jackson had in trying to find a studio who would underwrite the making of Lord of the Rings. I know Peter Jackson doesn't like wearing shoes. He is the ultimate hobbit. But I don't know Peter Jackson. The facts I know about him help me know about him, but I I still don't really know him. He certainly doesn't know me. Knowing Jesus is, is a lot more than just knowing about him. The Christians in Ephesus and in the other churches in Asia Minor where this letter was being circulated among um, knew Christ. But Paul is praying that they might know him better. The Greek word that Paul uses here for knowing is this idea of a real, a deep, um, a full knowledge of someone. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know Jesus like this. He says in verse 15, he knows they're full of faith and full of love in verse 15. But he wants that knowledge to go deeper and to be more intimate, to be real in their understanding and their knowledge of who Jesus is, to know him intimately. Now, the Ephesians had lots of pressing personal needs in their lives lots of practical needs that were were impounding on them. They were in a minority in a thoroughly godless city. And here they were being called to follow Jesus, to live holy lives in a city that was anything but holy. In the centre of Ephesus was a temple, a temple to the goddess of Diana. And the whole of the city life was dedicated to worship of this goddess, Diana. And the way that worship was worked out was through orgies with the temple prostitutes. And sex was going on all day, every day, everywhere throughout the city of Ephesus. That was the focus. And the Christians in Ephesus were being called to follow Jesus in this sort of society. 
how are they going to bring up their kids? How are they going to protect their children from these influences that they could see all around them? What about their employment? A lot of businesses in Ephesus existed to fund and support and to provide for this sex trade, the, the sex worship. As a Christian, could, could they be part of this? If they said no, they'd lose their job, their income, their livelihood. What were they to do? Sounds vaguely familiar to a society that we may be living in right now. Like us today, Ephesians, the Christians in Ephesians were concerned with what was happening in their city. The impact it was making on their lives. And they knew the importance of praying for these things. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he said we should pray to God about all things. And I'm sure that Paul said those same words when he was with the Ephesians, living amongst them. Tell God your needs. Pray to him. But here, he's not praying for these things that the people are struggling with. He's not praying for their protection from all this sexual stuff that's going all around them. He's not praying for their health. He's not praying for their protection. He's not praying for their employment they may lose if they say we're not doing this. He's praying that they might know Christ better. And in the next verses we're going to come to in a moment, that their eyes or their hearts will be enlightened, will be opened to the truths of, of Christ. You need to know Christ better, he says. And he's constantly praying that prayer for them. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed by what's going on around you, feeling distressed, feeling anxious. You're a small voice in a society that's heading in a direction contrary to what God wants, contrary to what, how God would want you to live your life. You feel alone. You feel lost in this group. Nobody seems to be paying attention to what you think, what you want to say. You put a post up on Facebook, Instagram, and you get one reply, and it's your mum. No one's listening. And Paul says, you need to know Christ better. And you might be thinking, that's not the prayer I want. That's not the prayer I need, God. Look at what's happening around me. I need help. I need you to come into my life and help me. Things at home, things at work, things at uni. I need some practical prayers, Paul. Prayers about the real issues that I'm up against day by day. Well, let me explain why Paul is praying this way. And I'm drawing some ideas here from the British-American preacher Alexander Begg. He says, what is it that, and he says some of these things, what is it that people in hospital, people with a debilitating illness, people grieving, people who've lost their job, students being bullied into the groupthink model, what do they need? A knowledge of God. That's what Paul's saying. But who's God? He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all things, of everyone, of everything. 
What kind of God is he? He's a God who's kind. A God who is slow to anger. A God who is full of mercy and goodness and kindness and, and swift to bless. A God who's faithful. A God who's dependable. He's a God who understands our needs. He's a God who can respond to our needs and help us and answer our needs. And that's why Paul is praying, you need to know God better. You need to know Christ better. He's praying that the reality of who Jesus is and the benefits we have because we are his followers are embraced by them. The great need for us, indeed for any group of Christians, whatever the age, whatever the situation that we're in, is knowing Christ. Having a deeper, a better understanding of who he is. And that was Paul's ambition in life as well. I want to know Christ, he says in Philippians 3. It's the key to all of life. Growing in our relationships with him. Reading his words. Spending time with other believers. With the aim to know Christ better. We need to be praying that for ourselves. We need to be praying that for each other. So from asking God that the Ephesians would would know Christ better, Paul then moves on to the second request, that they would have spiritual vision. He prays in verse 18 that the Ephesians might have their eyes of their hearts enlightened, that their eyes might be opened to the things they don't yet see or don't yet see fully. Paul knew from, from personal experience what it was to have your eyes open from blindness. Um, before he became Paul, the letter or the, the writer, the letter of Ephesians, Paul was known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And you remember as Saul was travelling towards Damascus, Jesus met him on the road and struck him down with this, this blinding light that left Paul with scales on his eyes. And as he made his way into Damascus and Uh, went to Ananias um, for for prayer. Um, Luke tells us that scales came off his eyes. Now, these were probably scales that came off his eyes, but it's also a picture of what was happening in in Saul's life. As these scales came off, as the blindness was taken away and sight came back to his eyes, his eyes were opened to who Jesus was was. And in a similar way, Paul is saying, I'm praying for your spiritual eyes will be opened to the truths around you. And in particular, the truths of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be in Christ, followers of of him, growing in your knowledge in him. Don't we need that today? Don't we need our eyes opened more to what Jesus is to us, what Jesus has done for us as we live in the world today. Remember the story, it wasn't the story, the the time when Jesus um, healed this blind man and and spat into this man's eyes and asked the man, can you see? And the man said, well, I can see people, they look like trees moving about. So Jesus touched his eyes again and he was able to see clearly. 
Paul is praying here that those who have faith in Jesus will have eyes of their hearts enlightened so they might see clearly who Jesus is and what is ours as believers in him. And he's saying three things, in fact, uh, in verses 18 to 19 that Paul is wanting us to understand better. The hope in which he has called you, verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So let's look first at hope. Paul wants us to have a better vision, a clearer understanding of the hope to which he has called us. We often talk about hope um, in a sense that there's some uncertainty about the outcome. That the chances of something happening or something not happening are, are pretty slim, or maybe slim. I hope my bags don't get lost in the flight. Linda was praying that prayer yesterday and it happened. Uh, um, her bags were not lost. Um, I hope that if I go to the dentist tomorrow, she's not going to find a cavity. I hope Essendon will do better next season. We keep on hoping. This isn't the hope that Paul is talking about here. The hope he's referring to is that you may know the hope to which he has already called you. It's the assurance and the reality that the Ephesians have but have not yet experienced, not yet fully experienced. The assurance of a reality they have not yet fully grasped. It's something that's been promised. It's something they can be assured of is theirs. It's just they haven't yet received it in its completeness and fullness. Remember the blessings that Paul sings about in the first part of this chapter? Looked at last week. There were three of them. Remember what they were? Chosen. That was one. Chosen, adopted by God to be in his family. Second one, redeemed, redeemed by his son. What we've celebrated this morning with communion, he's he's saved us. And the third one, sealed, sealed in the Holy Spirit, guaranteed for eternity. This is the hope that we have in Christ. Paul says in 1 John 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the hope we have. That's the hope Paul is saying, Open your, may your eyes be open to see how true and real this hope is. Do you have this hope? Of the blessings that Jesus gives you as a follower of him, have they sunk into your heart, into your soul? Is your confidence as a person grounded in Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus? Do you know for certain, you know that fact that you are a child of God, that you're redeemed, that you're saved, your sins are forgiven, that death for you will not be the end, but will be the beginning of a life in eternity with your Heavenly Father? Paul prays that our eyes will be open to the assurance, the certainty of the hope we have in Christ. 
And then Paul prays that our eyes will be opened to the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The expression that Paul is saying here can, be, can mean two things. It can mean God's inheritance or ours. Either the inheritance God receives because we are his children or the inheritance that he bestows on us by making us his children. And both meanings are equally valid. Um, God has an inheritance in his people, us. And we have an inheritance in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. But let's just think about the first sense of that, those double meanings this morning. We are God's inheritance. Paul wants us to appreciate and to understand how valuable we are to God. That God paid this incredible price that we have looked at and been reminded of this morning around communion, the death of his son for us to be redeemed. We are worth the death of his son. That's how much treasure, that's how much God sees us, his treasure, he is prepared to do that for that we might have life. And all the wonder and all the beauty and all the magnificence of God's creation, we are the ones God treasures. In the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi says these words, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as the Father has compassion and spares his Son who serves him. And there we have it. We are God's treasured possession. God sees in us, his people, his sons and his daughters, a glorious inheritance that is his. Preacher and author Ken Hughes says we ought to be delirious with this truth. Delirious with knowing that we are God's treasure. Does that knowledge that you are God's most treasured possession fill you with wild excitement? Does it knock you off your feet? when you think, wow, I am God's treasured possession. Paul prays that we would have eyes to see ourselves just as that, that we would understand this truth. And then we come to this third thing Paul prays for in terms of our spiritual vision, our eyes being opened. He prays that our eyes will be opened in verse 19 to his incomparably great power for us we believe the same mighty power God demonstrated in verse 20 when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. You may not be feeling very powerful right now. Often we don't feel powerful, do we? We feel weak. We get tempted. Uh, we give in. We fail. We go to the fridge door. We open the chocolate cupboard too many times. We find it hard to resist. We know what it feels like to be overwhelmed with what's going on in our lives. We wake up in the night with irrational anxieties, 
fears about the future, regrets that we have done about our past, worries about our health, concerns about our loved ones. And none of us are immune to that. Paul says, I'm praying that you might know the incomparably great power, or as the ESV puts it, the immense greatness of his power for us who believe. The same power that God raised Jesus from the dead. Peter and his disciples experienced that power in their lives. After Jesus' death, they were feeling defeated. defeated. They had pretty well given up. Jesus was dead. He was buried in a grave. Nothing was left for them to do but to go back to fishing. And we get to the end of the Gospels. We see that's exactly what they did. They went back out fishing in the boats. But then after Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, we see them out on the streets. We see them proclaiming Jesus performing miracles, risking their lives. Actually, many of them were actually put to death for doing exactly this. Lives totally transformed. Where do they get their power from? This power that transformed their lives so dramatically? From God. From God's incomparably great power for those who believe. And Paul in this these verses is wanting us to have, to understand, to experience that same power in our lives today. This amazing power that changes us from being on the outside to being sons and daughters of the living God. This power that gives us victory over sin, victory over temptation. This power that gives us courage and boldness to stand up and to declare Jesus, to witness for Jesus, to declare his truth. The power that helps us to stay strong and not be swayed by the pressures to conform at uni or at work. And one day, the same power will transform our earthly bodies into resurrected ones, fit for eternity. Do you understand that power? Do you understand that power that's available to us, for those of us who believe? This prayer of Paul for the Ephesians provides a, a wonderful model of how we can pray. Not just for ourselves, but for each other. We can pray for each other in terms of our health, or people's health, and needs, God's comfort, God's strength. God's provision, God's guidance, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But what might happen if we started praying this prayer of Paul for others, for those around us? What might God do in this place, in our families, in our communities, if we were praying for each other that we might know Christ better, that our eyes would be opened to all that we have in him, the hope that is ours, the fact that we are God's treasures, the power that God gives us. This week in the newsletter um, that we had a mention about um, a resource called Together We Pray. It's a 
revised or updated, reformatted um, prayer list. It's been going out for, for quite a while here um, to those who requested it. We've reformatted it and made it into a, a weekly, or was a weekly one before, but certainly a, a, a daily prayer idea point that you could pray for. Praying for our church family, praying for church leaders, for our ministries, our missionaries, our community, our world, each day one prayer request or one prayer item. At the end of every day, there is a little, scent, little line that says, pray for each other, pray today for, and there is an individual's name, a couple's name, or family's names. How might you pray for the person listed tomorrow, on Tuesday, on Wednesday? You might know some specific need that that person or that family may be facing and certainly pray for them in that way. But I encourage you to pray along the lines Paul prays here in Ephesians. Let us pray for ourselves. Let us pray for each other, that we might see Christ more and more, that we might have our eyes opened to see and understand the blessings we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Join with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have this great privilege of being able to talk with you, our Father. Thank you for this reminder from Paul of how, how important our prayers are. And Lord, as, as we think of others, uh, we pray you'd help us to think what is important to pray for. Remind us of this prayer of Paul's, that we would pray for ourselves, that we would pray for others that we might know Jesus better, that our eyes might be open to who we are because we are in Christ. Open our eyes, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.